Roman crucifixion was designed more than just to kill, but to teach a lesson. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected it. The crucifixion process usually began with what was known as the pre-crucifixion torture, where the one being crucified would be beaten with rods or flogged and scourged with a, with a whip specially designed for the purpose, with pieces of leather that had bone and metal woven into the leather. The, the idea was that every time the whip hit the flesh, it would tear away pieces of flesh, leaving muscle and bone exposed, causing incredible pain and profuse bleeding. After what could be hours and hours of torture... The one being crucified was often forced to take a heavy piece of wood that would be the the cross beam of the cross and carry it to the place of crucifixion. Not only would this be shameful and degrading, but it would be exhausting under the weight of wood sitting on the pain of fresh wounds. When the person being crucified got to the place where the crucifixion was going to take place, they would be laid down on the cross and nails would be driven into their body, affixing them to the wood. Hands either out to the side or above the head. Nails going either through the hand or through the wrist. Another nail going somewhere through the feet or the ankles. At some point in the process, the person would be stripped completely naked. The purpose of this was twofold. First, it was to cause shame and degradation in a culture that was marked by honor and shame. Second, it was caused to increase the physical torture, the being exposed to the harshness of the elements, the brutal heat or the biting cold, the swarming insects and the hungry birds. Once the person was elevated on the cross, their body would be in a position of permanent exhale as they sunk down, hanging sort of like this in a position of permanent exhale. Every breath they took, they would have to lift themselves up by the nails in their feet and their hands just to take a breath and then sink back down as they let it out. Every breath would be a struggle and a fight. It often took hours, sometimes days, to die in this way. Sometimes, as an act of mercy, the soldiers would break the legs of the ones being crucified to hasten the dying process. Dying by crucifixion usually happened by asphyxiation. If they didn't die from blood loss, they would die from asphyxiation. Eventually, they would become so exhausted, they no longer had the strength to lift themselves up just to take a breath, and they would suffocate. The Roman philosopher Seneca, who lived about the same time as Jesus, wrote about the horrors of crucifixion. This is what he had to say. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on his chest and shoulders, this a result from the torture, and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree? Seneca writes. You see, crucifixion was such a brutal way of execution that the Romans didn't use it on their own citizens. If you were a Roman citizen caught, of, uh, caught 
committing a capital offense they considered crucifixion too brutal. It was reserved generally for runaway slaves and enemies of the state. You see, crucifixion was designed, like I said, not just to kill, not just to punish, but to teach a lesson, to make an example, to warn off others. Another first century Roman writer by the name of Quintilian had this to say. He says, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effects. In other words, what Quintilian is saying is that we crucify people not just to punish the, the wrongdoer, but to warn other people. This is why it was reserved for runaway slaves and enemies of the state, especially, especially runaway slaves who are going to lead a rebellion. The, the idea was that if you were a slave and you were thinking that maybe running away was a good idea, you would see somebody along the crowded street who had been crucified for doing the exact same thing, and you would think twice about it. Or if you were considering raising up and starting a rebellion to overthrow the powers of Rome, you would see the last guy who tried to lead a rebellion hanging on a cross after being beaten for hours, and you would think twice about those actions. Penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effects. So that leads us to the question I know that you're all asking, which is, why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? Now, I know that you know the Sunday school answer to this question. I know you know the Sunday school answer to this question. But the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, if, if crucifixion was reserved for slaves and enemies of the state, why was Jesus crucified? In order to understand why the Romans even thought it worthy of executing Jesus, we need to understand what happened in its historical context. So from a religious standpoint, we know that the teachings of Jesus came in conflict, came in conflict with the religious powers of his day. Jesus came preaching a message of forgiveness and repentance, but he did so in a way that was at odds with the religious establishment of his day. You see, in Jesus' day, if you were a Jew and you wanted to find God's forgiveness, you would have to go to the temple, and you would have to sacrifice an animal, and it would cost you money, and that money then would, would line the pockets of the religious leaders. And Jesus came along preaching this message of love, and he was forgiving people outside of the temple context, and he was attracting crowds to him, crowds that should have been going to the temple, to these other religious leaders. And so the religious establishment became scared of Jesus, perhaps jealous of Jesus, and so they conspired to kill him. You see, they were afraid that Jesus' drawing of crowds would disrupt the very fragile relationship they had with the Romans. During that time, there was, there was a fragile relationship between the, the Jews and the Romans at the time. The Romans sort of let the Jews do their own thing so long as they didn't try to rebel against Roman authority. But anytime there was even a whisper of rebellion, the Romans would come in and they would stamp it out. And so the religious leaders were afraid that by Jesus drawing crowds, by claiming to be a Messiah, that he was going to attract the attention of the Romans and they would come in and destroy the temple and bring an end to their religious establishment. So they were afraid of Jesus. They also accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah. So they conspired and they had him arrested and they turned him over to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time. And here's what they said when they turned him over. The whole assembly, the religious leaders, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. 
He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. We learn this from Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. In other words, what the, the religious leaders take Jesus, they bring him to the Roman, Roman governor, and they say, this fellow here is claiming to be a king, and he's going to lead a rebellion. Now, some of what they said was true, and some of it wasn't, right? Jesus did gather crowds. His teaching was subversive to their religious establishment. He didn't oppose paying of taxes to, to Caesar, but anybody who claimed to lead a rebellion, that would have been a logical, reasonable accusation, so they, go, they went ahead and threw it in there. And he certainly did claim to be a Messiah. He did claim to be a king. Although we know that his kingdom was not of this world, he did claim to be a king. And there actually was some semblance of truth to their accusation because we know that later on, many of the early Christians were actually persecuted and executed for giving allegiance to Jesus that Caesar demanded for himself. In other words, they understood that there can only be one Lord. And Caesar claimed to be Lord, and so did Jesus. And so the early followers of Jesus, when they pledged their allegiance to follow Jesus, were by that very action saying, I choose not to claim Caesar as Lord, and they were persecuted and executed. So in a sense, Jesus really was a political threat. He really did take upon himself the allegiance that was supposed to go to Caesar. So the, the, the threat, the accusation of him being a, a political threat was not necessarily inaccurate. Now, we know that Pilate took Jesus and he examined him. And after his examination, he didn't believe that Jesus was the credible threat that the religious leaders presented to him. But he found himself stuck sort of between a rock and a hard place. Or if you'll permit me a pun, between a hard place and the rock of ages. You see, for Pontius Pilate, he knew that if word got to Caesar that he let a accused rebel leader live, it would be his head. So Pilate basically had no choice. The, the religious leaders gave him no choice, and so he eventually turned Jesus over to be crucified. And like I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus went through all of the things that normally accompanied a crucifixion. He was beaten and flogged for hours. The Roman soldiers took a crown of thorns and beat it on his head. And if you've ever had a cut to your head, you know how profusely head wounds can bleed. After that, John tells us that he began to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. The other gospel writers tell us that someone named Simon came along and they made Simon carry the cross. This has led people to believe that maybe Jesus began carrying the cross and at some point, just because of the, the brutality of his torture, he was unable to actually bear it. And so somebody else had to carry it. He was that wounded and exhausted. He was led up. He was nailed to the cross. At some point, they stripped him of his clothes, leaving him naked and bare. And they hoisted him up on a cross while people watched and mocked and insulted him. What would you do? What would you do if that was you? Being crucified and tortured for a crime that you didn't really commit? For preaching a message of love and acceptance and being treated this way for it? Here's what Jesus did. Luke tells us later on in chapter 23, he says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What mercy, what grace, 
What toughness. What love. He hung on that cross in agony and shame for six hours. Luke goes on to tell us a little later. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And he died there on the cross on Calvary. And you know, This should have been the end of the story. There were lots of other would-be messiahs who were crucified by the Romans. And when they died, their movements died with them. Their death didn't mean anything except maybe that of a faithful martyr. Nobody attributed any kind of power or special meaning to their death. But you all know that wasn't the end of the story. You've read ahead, haven't you? You know that after three days and three nights, Jesus was raised from the dead. And he went back to doing some of the very same things that he had been doing before. Hanging out with his disciples and teaching them and instructing them. Which leads us back to this question. Why was Jesus crucified? Why was he crucified? We know, that, we know why he was initially crucified. He was crucified because his message of love and acceptance was so unacceptable to the power structures of the world that they couldn't tolerate it. That's why he went to the cross. But why did he stay on the cross? Why die at all? He had the power to call legions of angels. He had the power to just walk off the cross, and yet he stayed. Why did he go all the way through? Why did he die? You see, not long after his death, Jesus' followers began talking about his death in a unique way, talking about his death as if it had power. Not just his resurrection, although that was part of it, but his very death itself as if it had power. And And they used terms like forgiveness, healing, victory, and reconciliation, all as a result, not only of his resurrection, but of his very death. So here are just a few things that some of his followers, those who wrote down for us the documents that we have as our New Testament, here's some of the ways that they interpreted his death. This is Paul in Galatians chapter 1. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to what? Rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God. And Father. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus died. The reason he stayed on the cross was for our sins, in order to rescue us. We needed rescuing from the present evil age, and somehow, in some way, his death accomplished our rescue. The Apostle Peter, who had followed Jesus, who spent time with him before and after the crucifixion, had this to say. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But, Peter says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter invokes sacrificial language here. That Jesus was sacrificed for us, that he became a sacrifice on our behalf. We know that Jesus died on or around the day of Passover. Passover was a celebration that the, that the Jews celebrated for centuries, and it looked back to, to God's original rescuing event where God rescued his people out of the land of Egypt. It was this great act where God came and he, he worked within the, the historical situation to rescue his people and bring them out of slavery and oppression. And Jesus, Paul tells us, is our, sacrificial, is our sacrifice given for us. In other words, Jesus is the, is the lamb. He's the, he's the means by which God came to rescue us from our power and oppression. John, another one of Jesus' apostles, had this to say. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, John invokes sacrificial language that Jesus was in some way sacrificed for our sins. He became the payment. He redeemed us. He paid for us. I could go on and on and on. And and, and Peter and and Paul and John, all of these different metaphors, all of these different ways that Jesus' death accomplished for us our rescue, our redemption, our ransom, our victory, our healing, all of these are images that that are used to describe what theologians call the atonement. The atonement, the the fancy theological word for what Jesus accomplished, the atonement. All of these are different images. And and some people spend, they get all worked up over which atonement image is is the right one or which one is the, the most important one. And I think when we do that, we end up missing the forest for the trees. We, we get so focused on the details that we miss what's actually important here, and that's this. Jesus died for us. He died for us in every sense of the term. He was our substitute, our sacrifice, our redemption, he, all of these things. It, it, it's, it's like looking at it from different angles and seeing something fresh and new. Jesus died for us in every sense of the word. One of my favorite preachers says that if someone will die for you, that person is for you. If someone will die for you, that person is for you. Right? So if you've ever wondered, what does God think of me? Jesus on the cross shows us the heart of God that God is for you. Not only did Jesus die for us, but Jesus died for love. It was love that held him there. Before his crucifixion, he was gathered with his followers, John tells us. And he says, greater love has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. In other words, Jesus equates love with lying, with giving up his life for his friends. He did it as an act of love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love. Jesus' sacrifice. So if you've ever had an image of God that's anything less than a God who loves you so much that he would give his only son, I want you to replace that image of God. If you want to know what God thinks of you, you 
are loved. You are of insurpassable worth in the eyes of God. He loved you so much, John tells us, that he gave his one and only son. He died for love, demonstrating his own love and the love of his father. This is what God is like. A God who loves us so much that he's willing to not spare his only son so that we can be rescued and redeemed and ransomed and all of the other things that the atonement accomplished for us. We looked at 1 John a little earlier. Here's what he says just a little bit later. John tells us, this is how we know what love is. Tell us, John, what is love? How do we know what love is? John says, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. You are loved. The God, creator of the universe, loves you, and it was demonstrated by the price he paid. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, Jesus went to the cross because his ministry and his message of self-sacrificial love came in conflict with the power structures of the world. That's why he went to the cross. But he stayed on the cross because he loved us. And he came to set us free. But it doesn't stop there. John keeps writing. He goes on, he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, too much of Christianity is focused only on the individual aspect of Jesus' love. Jesus died for me so that I get fire insurance and a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's where too much of Christianity stops. That Jesus died for me and we get to go to heaven when we die. But there's so much more to Jesus' life and ministry and crucifixion and resurrection than just fire insurance. It's so much more than that. You see, in Jesus' life, he modeled for us a life that's pleasing to God. A life characterized by self-sacrificial love and service and giving and forgiveness and love and reconciliation. And then through his death, he conquered death in the powers of darkness that held us captive, offering us not only forgiveness, but a new way of living. Not only forgiveness, but a new way of living. These things go hand in hand. You see, Jesus invites us not only to believe in him, but to follow him. He invites us, he challenges us, he commands us to take up our own crosses daily. To embody his love for the world in our own lives. To live out his radical message of self-sacrificial love and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, if we follow in Jesus' footsteps, if we live like he lived and love like he loved, we're going to find ourselves in conflict with the power structures of the world. We're going to find ourselves at odds sometimes with religious structures that aren't based on self-sacrificial love. We're going to find ourselves in conflict with political structures that emphasize power and might. We're going to find ourselves in conflict with economic structures that benefit the haves as opposed to the have-nots. If we really follow the example of Jesus, if we love like he did, we're going to find ourselves bumping up against the systems of the world in different ways. For many of Jesus' followers embodying his message in their lives cost them very much. They were arrested. 
They were tortured. Many of them were executed. But they watched Jesus do it, and they knew that they had been promised that same kind of supernatural love. You see, we don't have to do this on our own strength. We've been promised that same access to that same supernatural love, the same love that gave Jesus the strength to endure, a love that was tougher than nails. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what he invites us to do for each other and for the world. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's difficult sometimes to fathom that you are the creator of the universe and yet you love us. That you have called us by name, that you know our names, you've numbered the hairs on our head and you loved us so much that you sent your only son to rescue and redeem us. Lord, some of us have struggled believing that we're worthy of love. May the actions that you took in Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago forever put to rest the lie that we are unworthy of love. Father, for those of us who have not experienced your love, I pray that you would help us to experience it. That you would help us to experience it afresh for those who need a refresher. But Father, I pray that it doesn't just stop there. I pray that you would help us to be beacons of your love. Ambassadors of your love everywhere that we go. Father, may we be people so characterized by love that people think we're crazy. Just like they did your son. Father, we thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for calling us by name and inviting us to partner with you in your mission of reaching and changing the world. Strengthen us, God, and empower us with that love that's tougher than nails. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.